There are two paths that converge in Silicon Valley. One is the path of computing technology. Dating back more than 70 years, computing technologies have grown out of Silicon Valley, dating back to the point when it was almost entirely orchards. Electronic music has also had a long history in the Bay Area. The San Francisco Tape Music Center, Mills College, and figures ranging from Morton Sabotnik to Pauline Oliveros to Don Buchla have all called the Bay Area home. It's no wonder, then, that perhaps the most important and long-lasting center for computer music research was founded at Stanford University. And that was the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics, or CARMA. Welcome to Engineers and Enthusiasts. I'm your host, Chris Garcia. The Stanford AI Lab was a key area for research into artificial intelligence. One of the key reasons for that was John McCarthy, often called the father of artificial intelligence, one of the men who founded the conference that actually led to the establishment of artificial intelligence as a focused area of research, but he was far from the only significant figure in the history of AI to go through the Stanford AI Lab, or SAIL. Don Knuth, Les Ernest, and Ed Feigenbaum were all key figures at various times throughout the history of the Artificial Intelligence Lab. The AI Lab had a number of computers, notably an IBM 1790 and a Digital Equipment Corporation PDP-1. The PDP-1 was roughly the size of three refrigerators lined up with a very large circular screen that was used for video output. This is the same computer that Steve Russell, who would later be at the Stanford AI Lab, would use in 1963 to make Space War, arguably the first significant video game. These computers were time-shared, allowing various users to access the computer seemingly simultaneously. In 1964, John Chowning came to study music at Stanford. He had already done his time with Max Matthews at Bell Labs. He came to Stanford to study music with Leland Smith. Smith was a significant figure in the history of computer music. Smith was born in Oakland and had previously worked at Mills College, the University of Chicago, and even played with the Chicago Opera. He began teaching at Stanford in 1958. He would later turn his attention to computerized music typography, and would even produce the first book on music produced completely by the computer. Smith's program Score is arguably the first commercially available music notation program. Studying under Smith, Chowning began to look at more of the applications of the computer to music. And here, he met one of the most important figures in the history of karma, that of Dave Poole. Poole was a student at the AI Lab. Poole was a student at the AI Lab and began working closely with Chowning. The two of them developed many of the concepts that were key to the establishment of the Center for Computer Music Research. Chowning credits Poole with being one of the first figures to truly help him understand the technical side. Chowning and Poole actually came up with an online computer composition and synthesis system using the IBM 1790 and the DEC PDP-1 that the AI lab had. This required Chowning to write a sound movement program, and as a part of it, a 12-bit digital analog converter with a multiplier and four outputs was designed. This allowed for four-channel sound to be produced through the computing system. In 1966, the Stanford AI Lab moved to the former General Electric DC Power Laboratory. This was located in the hills above Stanford on Arastadero Road. For the new building came a new computer, a Digital Equipment Corporation PDP-6. The PDP-6 was a very important machine. It was already being used for 
research into many areas, including artificial intelligence, early operating systems, and even computer graphics. A key figure later in this story, Peter Sampson, was one of the designers of the PDP-6. Chowning, Poole, and others began to work at the DC Power Building. They used a music compiler for the PDP-6 called Music 10, which had been written by Poole. Chowning was actually a part of the music faculty at this point, not technically a part of the artificial intelligence lab. But John McCarthy's attitude was very open and engaging. Here, early karma researcher Gareth Loy talks a bit about both the building and McCarthy's attitude. You know, the, the tone was really set by uh, McCarthy. Um, John had this view of the use of computers that uh, you know, matched up with uh, Ada Lovelace's uh, largely, that, that it could be applied to pretty much anything under the sun. And the more applications there were, probably the better off the infrastructure of the computer technology that, that he was trying to develop and, and promulgate. Mm -hmm. So he had this very liberal attitude about you know, the kinds of applications that he would let into his lab. And uh, it's my understanding uh, from Shining that when Shining first read Max Matthews' article uh, in, in Science um, on uh, <clears throat> what the work that was being done by Matthews at Bell Telephone Laboratories, um, that he got a deck of cards from Max mm -hmm. and then took it to John McCarthy and said, look, I need to figure out how to run this on your computers. Well, it was for a different computer in a different language, and so it had to be translated, but you know, McCarthy was very open. Um, and again, the rest is history. And then there was, you know, the, the DC Power Lab was this big kind of uh, one radian, or a third of a radian, uh, half of a radian's worth of uh, arc. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Sale was down at the western end of the building, and the rest of the building was empty. <laughs> it's like uh, GTE, which had leased the land for the DC Power Lab building from Stanford and built it, mm -hmm. got, I don't know, 75% of the way done, and they actually used some of the facilities for a while, and then they said, oh, we're not going to be here anymore, goodbye and gave it back to Stanford and left. And it's like people just simply got up from their desks and walked away. And you could go into an office down at the far end of the building and uh, open it up and there would be, you know, a calendar from, I don't know, 1965 or something like that, you know, and a, a note on the desk um, <laughs> for something to do tomorrow <laughs> that was 10 years old. Um, so we took over some of the space down at the far end and created a theater space, pulled cables through the spline of the DC Power Lab building for, uh, for digital audio and uh, for uh, video, uh, for the uh, data dis displays and uh, a bunch of audio cables, um, and started doing some kind of weirdo stuff. And uh, an interesting facet of, 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 of this, the system was that all these rooms that we eventually developed uh, to uh, share sound also shared um, the output of the, the DAC. It was all mm -hmm. just mixed together. Oh, so wow. um, you'd always hear everything everybody was doing. Oh, wow. Which is a really cool feature mm -hmm. in retrospect. Yeah. At the time, it was very annoying because it meant it, it was like um, 
the uh, the eye of the needle that everybody had to go through. You know, oh my God, I can't believe he's going to play that 20-minute piece again. And all I want to do is just listen to my one, two-second little sample to see if I'm, I'm headed in the right direction. Uh. Okay, so there was basically a room about the size of my living room, you know, maybe um, 15 by 20 at most. Um, with a set of four Altic Lancic loudspeakers, um, a set of uh, digital analog and analog to digital converters that Andy Moore had built by hand, mm -hmm. uh, that I think were either 12 bit or 14 bit. Okay. I think maybe 14 bit. Mm -hmm. um, state of the art. Oh, yeah. Um, and what else? And uh, um, one of the uh, data disk terminals. Mm -hmm. uh, that there were like 32 of them around the building, I think. So we yeah. had we had one of them, and just outside the room there were three enormous triple uh, I vector graphics displays. Oh wow! And very often Leland Smith, uh, who wrote the score programming language for mm -hmm. uh, for music representation, you know, it, it, in um, um, what's the word engraved music. Mm -hmm. um, would often be at the triple I displays mm -hmm. and uh, the, the, the the sound hackers which was most of the rest of us mm -hmm. would be in the room with the loudspeakers and there were there were some other facilities uh, as well that sprouted up over the course of time mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but to start with it was that was it um, okay. so we just had you know basically one terminal into the uh, sales system mm -hmm. Uh, which, you know, if, if somebody vacated an office, you could go into their office after hours and sit down and, and, and plunk out your code. As Chowning was a part of the faculty of the music section, he began offering classes in computer-generated music, as well as general music theory. But at the AI lab, he was doing work with Poole and others. And in 1967, Chowning discovered FM synthesis, a key element in the development of musical synthesis on computers which would later be incorporated into electronic keyboards, like the Yamaha DX7. Here's Chowning on his discovery of FM synthesis. My musical training was the key to my discovery. It was not an engineering discovery or a mathematical discovery. It was altogether an ear discovery. In the autumn of, this, of 1967, while experimenting with two oscillators, one producing a vibrato in the second. So basically it's uh, infrasonic FM. Only I didn't call it FM, it was just vibrato. As I increased the vibrato depth and at, at uh, sub-audio rates, then I could track the instantaneous frequency as long as the rate was not too great. I increased the, the depth and the rate to the point where I could no longer track the instantaneous frequency, and then realized I was hearing just this complex tone. I decided to, to increase both of these values around to carry this average frequency, 200 hertz, from maybe the vibrato depth, 200 hertz, so that would be from zero to 400. This was a linear system, of course and um, then increasing the rate. Well, so one tries even numbers, like 200 hertz, I'll try 50, then 100, and 200, and then I thought, you know, 
what I'm hearing is uh, a complex tone that seems to have been made of harmonics. That's what my ear was telling me. I put an envelope on the amplitude of the modulating wave. And of course, I knew that with zero amplitude, I'd just get a sinusoid. And of course, then I heard this dynamic spectrum. And my ear grabbed that and understood immediately what was going on. With Chowning offering classes and still doing research with Poole and others at Sale, it was in 1969 that the first summer workshop in computer-generated music was held. It was taught by Chowning with Leland Smith, Bell Labs researcher Max Matthews, and George Gucker. This would begin a long series of classes that would instruct many of the key figures in the later history of computer music, including David Cope. FM synthesis was a key element in the development of computer music. It's believed that the first significant work written in FM synthesis, Sobolith, was written in the spring of 1971. Publication of Chowning's paper on synthesis, which appeared in the Journal of Audio Engineering Society in September 1973, truly opened the eyes of the world as to the possibility of synthesis on a smaller scale, requiring less complicated methodologies, and in particular, one that could be applied across platforms. The FM synthesis technique was first licensed to Nippon Gaki Inc., better known in America as Yamaha. This is in 1974. In 1977, Chowning was granted a patent for FM synthesis. This is one of the earliest and certainly the most significant of all the patents in the computer music space. Smith was working as well on his musical notation programs, which would lead eventually to score. The work here was key. The DC Power Lab was a very opening place, and the initial idea was that the PDP-6 would be used and time-shared among all the users. This led to some natural problems between users for the computer music, which was very cycle-intensive, and for the other AI research. Again, here's Gareth Loy. So, you know, there, there was tension, uh, mostly over the disposition of machine cycles. Mm -hmm. um, so, I remember uh, at one point Bruce Baumgart, uh, who was working on the, the Mars imaging project uh, uh, came to me and, and basically read me the riot act for using all the cycles I was using and, and told me to knock it off mm -hmm. um, so you know we'd back off 
right? Because mm-hmm. at that point, we were mostly guests of uh, Sale. Uh, but a few months later, uh, Chowning and uh, John Gray and, and uh, um, Lauren Rush um, managed to get some, and Andy Moore managed to get some sizable grants uh, from a combination of the National Science Foundation and uh, National Endowment for the Arts. Um, they described the process this way. Uh, they wrote up their proposals. Um, they'd go to the National Science Foundation and they'd say, well, you know, this would be a perfect thing for the National Endowment for the Arts. They take it over to the street and the National Endowment for the Arts. Oh, this is a perfect thing for the National Endowment for the Sciences. So uh, they finally got their heads banged together and realized, oh, this is one of those interdisciplinary things. All right, well, we'll give them a little bit of money if you'll give them a little bit of money. So uh, that gave us some, uh, a footprint at sale. By the early 1970s, there was significant interest in computer music among the artificial intelligence community. And in particular, researchers on both the musical and the acoustic side began looking to what they could possibly do at Stanford. This attracted many key figures in the later history, including James Moore, Lauren Rush, John Gray, and Richard Moore. All of them were making important contributions in many different areas. Gray and Moore began working on synthesis technologies and how to capture instrument tones into a computer. This actually helped lead the psychoacoustics concept that would be utterly key to an entire half of the research done at Karma throughout the 70s and 80s, and even today. Lauren Rush was known for doing speech synthesis, which often built off the work done by Max Matthews and others at Bell Labs. Rush, along with Moore and Ken Shoemaker, in 1974 created EdSynth, which was a program for the editing of recorded sound. One of the major stepping stones was how did you record this? High-quality digital recordings were possible, partly due to the digital analog converters that Poole and Chowney had made for the original PDP-1 and 1790 systems. This was a 12-bit system which allowed for four channels. Often overlooked, though, in all of this research that was leading to important programs and systems was the fact that music was actually being composed, typically by the people who were actually creating these programs and systems. Some of the most significant, Sabalith 1 for Sound and Three Performers by Chowning, Salmon by Ermfried Radauer in 1967, Rondino for Stereotape by Leland Smith, Poor, by Martin Bresnik, a very key figure, and Bresnik's wonderful fragment. Smith created one of the most interesting and potentially long-lasting impact with his Machines of Loving Grace from 1971.
Stafford has always interacted with other members of the academic community, and in computer music, this was also true. The most significant interaction was with Pierre, B Pierre Boulet, who was in the planning stages of creating his own Center for Computer Music Research at the Pompidou Center in Paris. A group of researchers came in August of 1975. These French researchers would later go on to found IRCOM, which is the leading European center for research into computer music, and also a key in the external approach of collaboration that Karma has always believed in. To this day, there are researchers who move between both sites. 
1975, there was obviously a need for an established center of its own. The Stanford AI lab was growing in one direction, and Karma was growing in another. At this, Chowning and others proposed separating the two and forming Karma as its own entity. Here's Gareth Loy. Karma was officially instituted as its own separate entity in June of 1975. The founders, John Chowning, Leland Smith, John Gray, James Bohr, and Lauren Rush, had all already proven themselves as key figures in the development of computer music. But perhaps even more importantly, they would prove the influence that would lead to an entire decade of development in computer and psychoacoustics. In our next episode, we'll be looking at the development of one of the most important musical co-processors in history, the System Concepts Digital Synthesizer, better known as the Samson Box. Thank you for listening to Engineers and Enthusiasts, a part of the 3-Minute Modernist. Please rate or review us, and look to our Patreon. We'll have a link in our show notes. We'll be back in a few weeks with more about the Samson Box, words from Chris Chafe, more from Gareth Loy, and pieces that were composed at Karma between 1977 and 1988.